Good morning, church. My name is Kudzai, and I'm from one of the Von Valley groups uh, led by Emmanuel. I'm going to be your Bible reader this morning. Uh, our reading comes from Matthew 4, verse 23, up to Matthew 5, verse 12. Our reading comes from Matthew 4, verse 23, up to Matthew 5, verse 12. I'll read. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for they is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Thank you, Kudzai, uh, for that reading. And uh, I just want to add my voice to others and extend... Um, my thanks to God for Pete and Rosie. Uh, I just want to also reiterate that they are not being put out to pasture by any stretch of the imagination. Even if Martin did find Pete uh, grazing in the felt when he first came to Midrand, we are not uh, putting them out to pasture. There is, um, we, we're excited about what the next chapter holds. Um, Pete, let me do one last roll of the dice. If we serve scones with cream and strawberries at the council meetings, what do you think? Have fun, he says. <laughs> okay, no, guys, we really do appreciate you. We love you. Uh, we're grateful to God for you. And as I said, we wish you well for this next chapter. We, we're excited to see what it holds. I'm going to uh, open in a word of prayer before we come to this wonderful text. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, we... We need to see you, but we are blind. We need to hear you speak, but our ears are stopped. We need to receive you, but our hearts are hard. And so we pray in the power of your Spirit that you will open our blind eyes, that you will give us ears to hear, that you will soften our hearts and cut them for Christ once again. And we pray this in his name. Amen. 
We started a new series in the Beatitudes last week, and we covered a lot of ground that's going to be important to us every single week. So let's do a quick refresher. The Beatitudes are the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus saw that his ministry was starting to gain some momentum, he called his disciples. There were others who came with him, but he called his disciples up onto the mountain so that he could preach to them. He wanted them to know who they were following and where they were going. In the sermon, he gives them a vision of life in the kingdom. It's a manifesto for disciples of Jesus Christ. It's a new covenant for the people of God. It's a call to a radically counter-cultural way of life. And we, we saw that the first word in the sermon is not one of instruction or command. It's a word of blessing. We saw last week that what we mean by blessing is often worlds apart from what Jesus means by blessing. They can be two entirely different things. We tend to focus exclusively on physical blessings. We tend to make them the main thing. And they are blessings. A good meal, a healthy child, a soaking rain, these are blessings. But if we make them the main thing, we turn them into idols. And they so often become a curse. They're not the blessings unique to disciples of Jesus Christ. They're not the blessings unique to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus wants us to focus on those blessings. In fact, he wants us to seek them first. Seek first the kingdom. Those are the blessings he focuses on. And those blessings we saw come to every citizen of the kingdom. Every person living under the gracious rule of King Jesus. We saw that those blessings are both present and future, or future and present. Not yet, but also now. We saw that the blessings are about being, before they're about doing. They're about character, before they're about conduct. They're about identity, before they're about ethics. They're about God's grace, before they are about our response. We looked at that first beatitude we decided it meant something like this. God's favor rests on those who depend on him. He welcomes them into his kingdom. In the kingdom of heaven, the poor are rich. God gives everything to those who see that they have nothing to give to him. And so the whole Sermon on the Mount is built on this foundation of grace. It flows from this wellspring of grace. You remember all of that? Of course you do. It means we're ready for this week's blessing. Matthew chapter 5 verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You can't miss the paradox, can you? Blessed are those who mourn. In other words, happy are the deeply unhappy. Happy are the deeply unhappy, the profoundly unhappy, for they shall be comforted. We said the Beatitudes are a call to a counterculture. You see it clearly here. They are a vision of life in the upside-down kingdom of God. Of course, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not upside-down. It's the right way up. We only feel like it's upside-down because we've been hanging from our ankles all this time. And the way that Luke records this beatitude for us makes it crystal clear what it means. He says, those who weep now will laugh. And those who laugh now 
will weep. Life in the kingdom and life in this world are polar opposites. It's up and down. The kingdom is a counterculture. Disciples can expect the unexpected. We will be different. Before we go any further, we do need a basic understanding of verse 4, what it actually means. So who are those who mourn? What does it mean to mourn? It cannot mean grieving for the loss of a loved one. As profound as that is, it cannot mean that. Why? Because this or that, grieving for the loss of a loved one, that is not the exclusive experience of disciples. So as profound as grieving for the loss of a loved one is, it actually is, must be pointing us to something deeper. The mourning that Jesus speaks about here, grieving for a loss of a loved one, must be pointing us to a deeper loss. And if we see this beatitude in the context of the first beatitude, the context of spiritual poverty, then this morning is grief over that condition. Grief over our spiritual poverty. It's grieving the loss of innocence. It's grieving the fact that we have nothing good in and of ourselves to give to God. That's the life of the disciple. And it is radically different from ordinary life in this world. To help us see the difference, we're going to approach it from three different directions. So we're going to look at false happiness. There's a worldly version and there's a religious version. False happiness. Then we'll look at false mourning. Again, a worldly version and a religious version. And then we'll look at true mourning. What is true mourning? In the light of these counterfeits, what is true mourning? False happiness. This is about those who laugh now. That's how Luke would put it, and it's a very helpful, simple way of thinking about it. Those who laugh now are those who are casual about life. As long as they're having a good time, they're basically indifferent. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. Those who laugh now hate the idea of mourning over anything. Don't focus on that. Don't be such a downer, such a wet blanket. Don't be so serious. Often they are the most awkward people to have around anything that is vaguely sad or heavy. They want nothing to do with mourning of that kind, of any kind. We just need to get past it so we can get back to enjoying ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this, The whole organization of life, the pleasure mania, the money, the energy, the enthusiasm that are expended in entertaining people, are all just an expression of this great aim that the world has, to get away from the spirit of mourning. Rather than mourn over what's wrong in the world, we use what's wrong as an excuse for more fun, for chasing after this false happiness. So it's no longer a funeral, it's a wake. See the difference? Leo Tolstoy, that Famous Russian novelist, War and Peace. He recorded a time uh, like this in his own life. A time when he did nothing but pursue false happiness. This is how he describes it. As soon as I would 
give in to vile passions. I was praised and encouraged. Ambition, love of power, self-interest, lechery, pride, anger, vengeance, all of it was highly esteemed. As I gave myself over to these passions, I became like my elders, and I felt that they were pleased with me. A kind-hearted aunt of mine with whom I lived, one of the finest of women, was forever telling me that her fondest desire was for me to have an affair with a married woman. Nothing shapes a young man like a liaison with a decent woman, she would say. And the greatest happiness of all would be for me to, we- to, to marry a very wealthy young lady who could bring me as many serfs as possible. We all know people like this. Perhaps we were people like this. Perhaps we still are. Life is basically a self-indulgence. It's all about self-indulgence. Life is spent avoiding the dark side. Problem is, the dark side of life always catches up with us in the end. Because none of us can escape death. In that sense, Franz Kafka was right when he said, the meaning of life is that it ends. And Marcus Zusak is right when he opens his novel, The Book Thief, with these words. Here's a small fact. You are going to die. Those who laugh now, those who pretend it's all just a joyride and the only thing to be concerned about is having a good time, they may have a good time. But in the end, they are going to be horribly disillusioned. It's a false happiness. That's the worldly version. There's also a religious version, even a Christian version. Listen to John Stott. He writes, Some Christians seem to imagine that, especially if they're filled with the Spirit, they must wear a perpetual grin on their face and continuously be boisterous and bubbly. How unbiblical can one be? The truth is that there are such such things as Christian tears, and too few of us ever weep them. That's false happiness. Worldly version, religious version. Second way to understand what difference discipleship makes is through the lens of false mourning. Once again, we have a worldly version and we have a religious version. This time we'll start with the religious version. The thing that false religious mourning has in common with false religious happiness is that in both cases it's a pretense. It's put on. It's something we work up in ourselves because we believe it's expected of us. It's a socialized behavior. That's true of religion, whether it's false happiness or false mourning. You believe that you have to prove your faith to others, either by bouncing around like Barney the dinosaur or by moping around like Eeyore. If you don't know who those guys are, you just need to have kids. It'll solve the problem for you. (laughs) Point is this. The Lord will never ask us to pretend. Never. If we're pretending, it isn't true joy. If we are pretending, it isn't true sadness. It's just hypocrisy. And we know what our Lord Jesus felt about hypocrisy. Woe to you, you hypocrites. He'll never ask us to pretend. So what does this hypocrisy, this false religious mourning look like? 
Someone described it like this. It is not natural. It doesn't come from within. It assumes a pious appearance. It almost gives the impression that to be religious is to be miserable. It turns its back on many things that are natural and legitimate. So there's a, there's a real or pretended guilt over having any sort of fun whatsoever. You know, I'm just way too sinful to enjoy that. That's the religious version. The worldly version is uh, what we would often see on Oprah in the classic celebrity confession interview. You remember those? Here's a question. Why do the tears only come after the scandal has broken? And why are all the tears in public on Oprah? It's because the image of me has been shattered. That's what's been shattered, the image of me. The fact that it was fake to begin with doesn't really come into it. The thing you hear repeatedly in those interviews is this. Not that. <laughs> Where the sound goes? I've got a wall. Step back. Thanks, Jeremy. Now it's a race. All right, we're good. The thing we hear repeatedly in those celebrity interviews is, I've let my fans down. It's all about brand management. This is not a relationship you have with anybody. They're just the other side of a Twitter account. It's all about, I was trying to protect this image, and I was doing pretty well. But now it's all ruined. The real loss that's being felt is the loss of reputation. That's what's being mourned. And what we have to see here this morning, as we sit here this morning, what we have to see, what we have to acknowledge is that we're no different to Lance Armstrong or Tiger Woods. We're exactly the same. We mourn the loss of reputation. We mourn the sadness of getting caught. The only difference is our audience is smaller. So that's false mourning. There's the religious vision and there's the worldly vision. If we're surrounded by fake happiness and fake mourning, what's the alternative? Of course, the alternative is true mourning. And the best place to see it is in Jesus himself. We see him standing next to the grave of Lazarus. And then we read in John 11 verse 35, Jesus wept. I'm going to resist the temptation to tell you that that's the shortest verse in the Bible. We preachers love telling you that. It's like our favorite piece of Bible trivia. Not today. Today I'm going to be strong. What's far more interesting is the question, why did he weep? Because he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead in just a few moments' time. So why was he weeping? Death itself. 
It was the pain that death causes. It was the fact that this is not how things are supposed to be. Death is an intrusion, an invasion, a violation of God's good world. God said, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. And we can almost imagine him saying it through tears. Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled at the death of Lazarus. That's what the text says. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled at the death of Lazarus. And those words don't quite capture it. He was outraged. He was in turmoil. He was in anguish. He was feeling the weight of sin in the depths of his soul. He was torn apart by the tragedy of sin. The way it distorts and corrupts and perverts and twists and undermines everything that God has declared to be very good. He was mourning the loss of our innocence and everything that goes with it. Jesus is the embodiment of true mourning. The people of God across the ages echo him in this. Reggie prayed a psalm of lament for us this morning. Elsewhere, the psalmist cries out to God. He he writes, my eyes have shed streams of tears because men do not keep your law. In Ezekiel, we hear of God's people as those who sigh and groan over the abominations committed in Jerusalem. The apostle Paul wept, wept over those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He wept for them. Those are the saints of old, but God's people today continue to mourn over the ravages of sin. I've experienced this myself in the past month or so in my interactions with, with, two, with two women. The first was a young lady, a teenager, and she was telling me about what some of her friends are doing. And she was sobbing. She was sobbing. She was weeping over their loss of innocence. There wasn't a hint of self-righteousness or recrimination or I'm better than them. It was just a deep, deep sadness for them, with them, on their behalf. The second lady was older, a lady who's seen it all, a tough lady, a lady who doesn't flinch in the face of a crisis. But in this case, she just couldn't hold back the tears. Just couldn't hold them back. The tears flowed for the tragedy of this wicked, broken, lost world. Couldn't hold them back. Disciples of Jesus feel the sin of this world deeply. But it's not the kind of bitter anger that overflows from a self-righteous heart. It's the profound grief that overflows from a heart of love for the lost from a deep sense of solidarity with other sinners, from the weight of the human tragedy that we're all a part of. And that leads us into another dimension, another dimension of true mourning. Mourning over your own sin. Again, the Apostle Paul is helpful. He writes this. It's impossible to read, but I'll try. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. 
For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. In our generation, that is a radically countercultural way of being. Why? Well, because it breaks every rule of the doctrine of self-esteem. Be nice to yourself. You do you. Nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. Do what makes you happy. Surround yourself with a supportive squad. And then there's the Apostle Paul. What a wretched man I am. True mourning faces up to the fact that this world is in a mess. It faces up to the fact that I'm part of the mess. This is not the false happiness that pretends there's nothing wrong. And it's not the false mourning that is only concerned about what other people think of me. This is staring my own failure in the face. In all of its ugliness and weakness and cowardice and admitting that there's no one else to blame but me. It's coming to terms with the fact that the real tragedy is not my fall from favor. It's not my downgrade in public opinion. It's the pain that I've caused others. It's the pain that I'm causing God as I grieve his spirit. This kind of grief over my own sin, as I said, it's fallen out of fashion. Isaac Watts was an 18th century hymn writer. We still sing his hymns. You probably know some of them. Uh, You might have heard of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You've certainly heard of Joy to the World, a Christmas carol that we sing. There's a line in one of his hymns that goes like this. Lord, I am vile, conceived in sin. Can you imagine us singing that today? Can you imagine that coming out of Hillsong? Can you think of any song we sing that really mourns over our sin, over sin in general and my share in it? They do exist, and we do sing some of them, but they are few and far between because nobody's writing them. Even in the church, true mourning is not a popular theme. And that's because true mourning is grieving over the brokenness of this world and my share in it. You grieve over the brokenness of this world and then you grieve again because you're part of it. Now how can all of that possibly be a state of blessedness, of happiness, of God's face shining upon us? How? It ends in comfort. In fact, it's the only way to get to true comfort. Pretending nothing is wrong, as in false happiness, it doesn't offer any comfort. Because here's a small fact, you are going to die. False happiness is an illusion that always and inevitably ends in death. It is shattered by death. It offers no comfort. But the same is true of false mourning. Fake grief, as in regret over being exposed, or faking grief out of religious duty, both of those things are just about managing what other people think of me. And so there's no comfort there either. Because in the end you fail in your image projection. 
And whatever others think of you, it's fickle. It's not going to last. In the end, you're exposed. So there's no comfort there. True grief, grief that faces up to the sin in this world and the sin in my life, that is the only way to true comfort. Now, why? Why would that be? How does it work? Well, let's go back to the Apostle Paul one last time. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So I find this Lord work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another Lord work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? In other words, where will I find comfort? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is our comfort and Christ alone. The blessing for those who mourn comes through the comfort that only Christ can bring. And he doesn't come to you with a false comfort, saying peace, peace, where there is no peace. That's what our culture does. Our culture's answer to sin is self-esteem. We just affirm each other. It's not so bad. Nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. Compare that with what Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be cast into hell. No pretending. No false affirmation. He exposes our sin in all of its ugly horror. So where's the comfort? What's comforting about that? Because by that standard... All of us are ending up in hell. The comfort comes when he casts himself into hell for us. The comfort comes when he rises again in victory. And he rises again because he's sinless. So death can't hold him. And hell can't hold him. Those who trust in him enjoy all the comfort of his victory. And they will enjoy it to the full when they see him face to face. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more, no more mourning. No more mourning. No more crying. No more tears. Because the old order of things has passed away. Those who mourn now will laugh with sheer joy when he returns. That is true comfort. We sang it earlier. He turns our mourning into dancing. That's true comfort. And it's only in Christ. Our problem, even in the church, is that we want to skip ahead to the blessing of that comfort. We want it in its fullness now. But you can't get to true comfort without passing through true mourning. Because we want to skip ahead, we end up pretending, either faking our happiness or faking our sadness. But you can't know the heights of the comfort that we have in Christ without knowing the depths of grief 
over our sin. Once we know the depths of our sin, it will expose us, it will strip us naked, we will see our spiritual poverty, and we will see Christ as he truly is. The only one who can clothe us and fill us and bring us comfort. And what an unspeakable comfort he brings. That leads us to our last word. The Beatitudes are many things. They're many things. We mustn't lose sight that among the many things that these blessings are, they are an invitation. They are always an invitation. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's an invitation. If you are grief-stricken over sin, if you weep for the lost, the lostness of this world, the tragic lostness of this world, if you cry bitter tears for your own part in that, come to Jesus. He has made right what you made wrong. Come to Jesus. In the end, he will make all things right. Come to Jesus. Come this morning. And he will give you true comfort. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit, please help us to see our sin in all its tragic ugliness and awful rebellion. Help us to see it as it is so that we can truly, truly mourn over it. We know you don't ask us to pretend. So please give us the eyes to see things as they are. And then, Father, help us to see the blessing of true comfort that waits for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And, Father, please, if there's anyone here who is grieving their sin but has no comfort, please, Father, bring them in their tears to the Lord Jesus that he might embrace them and offer them the only true comfort that there is. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.